Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, a man with a face for radio and a voice for blogging, Mark Bigney. With me as always is a man whose sheer animal magnetism has beguiled everything from humans to hummingbirds, my co-host, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. I'm glad to hear that. So today we're going to do what we always do. We're going to talk about games we played. We're going to talk a little bit more about our feature game. We're going to talk a little bit about news and why it doesn't matter. And the primary topic of today's podcast, we're going to be talking about randomness and how to deal with it. How to be grown-ups in the face of dice telling you that you're stupid and ugly and no one likes you. Uh, so first off, in terms of uh, games we played, what's the first game you want to talk about, Walker? Well, Champions of Midgard. It's an older game, but all the new expansions just got here with the Kickstarter. And we played it twice this week, and I thought they did a great job with the new expansions and all the cool Viking, Viking meeples and uh, it took, took an old game and brought it back to the table so that's always good Is there anything radically new or is it just well, nuanced they, stuff? Nuanced stuff like more stuff to fight more journeys to go on to and something to like uh, give you a, a direction in the game like they have three main objectives and you have to and gives you a reason to get your guys killed like every time your dice die you get tokens and you put those tokens towards your main objective type thing so, would you think that these expansions are sufficiently accessible that new players can jump right in, or is this just for? Yeah, for sure. I think you can introduce them right off the right off the hop. You don't need to do the base game and then say, okay, now we're going to add expansions. You can just throw the expansions in right off the beginning. I think they're that easy to incorporate. Yeah, some games. I love the expansions, but it's just a little bit too much for new players, and that's always awkward. That's right, and you always have new players, so it's impossible to get those expansions to the table, because you're always saying, okay, well, we have new people, so we're just going to play the base game again. Yeah, I hate noobs, too. Noobs are terrible. They're ruining the hobby. I think we should ban them all. Exactly. Uh, well, the first game I'd like to talk about is, uh, you've played this game once, Walker. It's Sidereal Confluence, uh, Trading and Negotiation in the Elysian Quadrant, which definitely, uh, yeah, based on the look of your face, I, I think the, the title of the game warrants it. When I played it, it was called Trade Empires, and that's still what I call it, and I'll, what I'll always call it in my heart of hearts. Uh, the street name is simply Sidereal Confluence, but even that's pretty awful. No offense to the designer. Uh, this is It was released this year. It's by Tau City Dykeman, who's uh, designed a brilliant, brilliant game. It's a trading game uh, with heavy, heavy, heavy asymmetry. Um, and I personally thought, Walker, like I think you are, that I was done with taking cubes and turning them into other cubes so I could get more cubes, and then at the end of it, it would get points. In fact, I, I played um, Century Spice Road, and I hated it. Couldn't stand it, because I, I, I'm done with cubes into other cubes. But for just it's just the asymmetry and the trading really, really, really gets me. Sidereal Confluence is a brilliant game. Uh, I've been playing the crap out of it lately, and almost everybody likes it, except for the esteemed band sitting across from me. Uh, it's a great game. Like I said, it is a great game, but it's one of those games that you'll definitely get better the more you play it. And knowing which cards are coming out is definitely going to help the players that know the game. 
I insist that I'm going to convert you. I think I think at midway through your second game, you're going to be sitting there and you're going to be saying, "Mark, I apologize. I was I was incredibly wrong about this." Um, because you just gotta. Uh, one of the things that that that's that's striking about it is there's so much information to parse. It really is better for those kinds of gamers that are able to look at a sea of information and say, "Okay, I'm going to have to choose to ignore this part of it because otherwise I'm going to drive myself crazy." Uh, or uh, for those kinds of people who look at a sea like that and say, "No, no, no, I must solve every detail." But for people in the middle, the people who like, you know, I want an information space that's that's not too big. And uh, then it might drive them crazy because the information spaces can get reasonably big. I'm just really, really good at being dumb and saying, I'm going to ignore all this crap because I'm not smart enough. That's right. Concentrate on your machine and this part of your machine and get it done. Yeah, exactly. Uh, What's next for you, Walker? Next for me is the New Orleans Co-op Expansion. So if you're on the fence about trying it or buying it, I'd say go for it. I played it four times this week. We only played it two-player, but it's fantastic. It goes right down to the last turn. It was... We it was a 50-50 win ratio, so and every time it was down to we needed one more turn or we got we won on the last turn. So I give it two thumbs up. Which modes have you tried? Just just, just the invasion. I see. Either that expansion. We haven't done the carpenter or any of the solo stuff in there. Oh, I see. I uh, so there's only one Correct. co-op mode multiplayer. That's oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, I might have to give uh, Orléans another try with uh, with with that in mind. No, I'm sorry, Walk. Viewers at home, Walker is sneering at me. This is this is prejudice against my French Canadian ancestry. He's just he's just bitter that he can barely speak one language as opposed to me who can't speak two. Uh, it's true. I'm going. I am going back to learn Latin. <laughs> I, I I too want to learn another language. <laughs> he he meant to say another dead language. He's been ragging on the ragging me on this for quite some time. <laughs> Well, the next uh, the next game I, uh, I've been trying lately. This is something that we've been doing together. This is uh, Warhammer Underworld's Shadespire, the latest offering by Games Workshop. Uh, this is their attempt to break into the uh, sort of competitive, accessible skirmish market, kind of roughly in the same design space as I'd say X Wing ish, in yep. the sense of you know you can pick up and play, and, That's right. and, and you've got you all get your stuff. you get your army pre made, and you get to the table, and you're ready to go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I gotta say that I'm I'm completely blown away at how good this design is. I don't think it's brilliant by any stretch of the imagination, but I've had you know dalliances with some of Games Workshop non-core products for decades now, really. And this is by far the most accessible, clean. There's lots of clever little design elements, and that's not normally something I associate with Games Workshop outside of Space Hulk. Aside from Space Hulk, everything has been when it's fun. It's rarely been clever. And just the way the activation system works, the way the movement system works, the way you can figure out, okay, this guy can't move anymore, so there are, I can push for this objective, and the way it works with the card play, I've really been impressed. I don't know about you, Walker. For sure. The, the number of mechanisms that are brought together in this game is pretty amazing, especially for Games Workshop. Yeah, uh, there are now four total warbands, the two that come in the core box, and the two other ones, I've, I've, I've tried them all. They've all been really interestingly different as well. Uh, so I, I really can't see, can't wait to see where the game goes, and I hope that there's a, a sort of vibrant competitive scene that develops around it, uh, the way other games do. Because uh, quite frankly, the other games in its ilk, like uh, whether it's you know the, the more accessible skirmish type minis game like X Wing, like Armada, you know, not not nearly as much to my taste. And uh, so if if this takes off, I'll be very very pleased. Yeah, the sculpts are amazing too. The only thing I'll differentiate from the other ones is that it's not going to be pre-painted, so. Yeah, take away from that what you will. That is true. Next up, Walker? The last one I've got is what we played together, and that is Keeper, the new thing from the 
Richard Brees. Richard Brees and his Key Flower series. And I was also blown away by this one. I've never had a problem with any of those games, especially Key Flower. I think it is an amazing game, and Keeper lives up to that reputation, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I was less sold on it, to be honest. Um, partially because of this is a bit of an unfair comparison, because of its similarity to Keyflower. Uh, Keyflower, you know, you, you get the tiles, you build the tiles, you upgrade the tiles, you get your point engine tiles, you get your economy tiles, and stuff like that. But uh, so the, the thing that blows me away primarily about Keyflower is just the way the auction mechanism works at the same time as the worker placement, and how I can go to your board and activate some of your stuff, and it was that level of interaction. Uh, the, the primary element of interaction with Keeper which is a sort of joining mechanism. I thought it was okay, but it didn't really grab me. So at the end of the day, if, if, if you're going to ask me to sit down for 90 to 120 minutes of sort of Euro tile placement building, I'll probably go back to Keyflower, honestly. Uh, but, you know, I, I respect the fact that Brees knows what he's doing. It's, it's certainly clean and pleasant. I, don't dis- I didn't dislike the game. Uh, I just I don't think I was quite enthused about it as, as you were. Sure, but the joint player boards blew me away. Like the, how, uh, <laughs> They're like a puzzle Rubik's Cube... Uh, right out from uh, the Hellraiser movie. If you hit the wrong combination, you're going to be in some trouble. <laughs> that is true. You did. You did love those folding boards. Uh, <laughs> the last game I want to talk about quickly is uh, Immortals, uh, again published this year by uh, Dirk Hen and Mike Elliott. This is sort of the third game in the basically the same bones that were established in Wallenstein in 2002 and in Shogun in 2006. And uh, I'm not sure whether Hen had much to do with this iteration. I don't know if they just handed the design to Elliot and said, you know, t- make Shogun and Wallenstein your own. Elliot's the guy who did uh, Thunderstone, for what it's worth, and he's done some other work. And uh, this is sort of a, a generic fantasy version of Shogun and Wallenstein, and it has the, the infamous cube tower. I love that cube tower. Um, and I really liked Immortals. It, every change that it did to the Shogun Wallenstein engine, I liked. Uh, combat was slightly more dynamic, you had a little bit more flexibility in terms of how you're going to plan your actions uh, armies don't really die, they just go somewhere else, and so managing where your armies are that's why the game is called what it is um, but at the end of the day uh, it basically showed to me that the core element that I don't like about the Shogun Wallenstein engine, namely that it's a little too static and a little too long even if you make it a little bit more dynamic, I still find it just a tad too static and a tad too long I've been spoiled by uh, games where the movement options really open up the breadth of breadth of play. Things like Senji, things like Kemet. Kemet. Uh, Scythe. Yeah, things like that, absolutely. Where you uh, you're, you never really feel like you're, you're trapped in one little corner of the board, and then suddenly player A says, oh, player B is winning, who's going to stop them? And you look at the board and shrug and say, I can't reach them ever, so that's that. And, uh, you know, in other words, this is the same sort of multiplayer conflict game problems since the dawn of time. That having been said, as I say, Immortals is slightly better than Shogun and Wallenstein at that, but still... And it's it's reliably in excess of two hours, which for me is the unforgivable sin. If this if this if this game system had an iteration that was like ninety minutes, it might be my favorite game, yeah, for sure. But the the where you get the two different races and merge them together, and the fact that like you said, it took everything that was good from those two games and just improved that and took out everything that was bad. But like you said, it is too long. Yeah. And uh, for what you get. Yeah. So I, I really I really liked it, but it was just shy of greatness for me. And in, and sometimes that's even more frustrating than a terrible game. Um, but that's basically where I ended up on it. Jo- enjoyed all my playings, but you know, when it re- when we're rounding about the ninety to one twenty minute version, I start checking my watch and figuring, okay, this is this is kind of a foregone conclusion. Let's call it a day. That's right. 
Well, with that having been said, a sort of executive summary on what we've been playing, uh, why don't you introduce our feature game to us, Walker? Our feature game this week is Kingdom Death Monster. Never heard of it. Massive Kickstarter. It's going to make this discussion kind of awkward then, if you've never heard about it. It'll, maybe it'll be one-sided. That means everyone can just listen to what I have to say, and it'll give everyone a break. So I suppose that is a good thing. You have my sympathies. It is a massive role-playing, dice-chucking, dungeon-crawling death fest. Well, let's call it what it is. It's Warhammer Quest. It is Warhammer Quest. I mean, I, I, and I don't mean that disparagingly. Like, it's, it's very much in the same mold as Warhammer Quest. I don't mean to say that everything that it does was done previously in Warhammer Quest. Quite the opposite. Kingdom Death Monster has a number of uh, improvements on the genre, but it is very much a sort of... Uh, it's a genre of a game that I call fun paperwork. It's like you, exactly. you, you spend a lot of time doing fun paperwork, uh, very much like a role-playing game. Now, you don't do any role-playing in Kingdom Death Monster, and, and good thing you don't, because otherwise you'd, you know, the, at the start of each session, you have to tear off all your clothes and go start raving mad yes. uh, at the beginning. Um, but yeah, I mean, just just for some context, you said it was a massive Kickstarter hit way back in the Halcyon days of 2012, uh, back when kickstarting board games wasn't, you know, arguably the dominant form of distribution for everything outside Asmodee. Uh, it raised over two million bucks, and that was an unheard of sum at the time. And I pledged not, not knowing what I was getting myself into, to be honest. Uh, I gave them in $350 in 2012, and then three years later, uh, $1,500 worth of retail material shipped, got shipped to my door. Uh, no one really knew what was going on, certainly not at all the creator. The creator took a bath on this originally. He, didn't, he, he, he just went nuts. I mean, he, he, went, he went crazy in a way that some of those projects do. But man, what came out the other end? <laughs> so true. And that, that two million figure is only the initial Kickstarter, never mind how much people added on after the fact as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was the 1.5 upgrade Kickstarter that also raised millions of bucks. That's right. He can't keep the base game in stock. I mean, I paid, uh, I, I, lo- I actually looked up at the original Kickstarter. I paid $85 for that core game in 2012. And now it's selling, you know, he just keeps increasing the price, but he still can't keep it in stock. Uh, and there's just so much crap stuffed into that box. It's madness. It really is madness. Um, so let's talk about the actual game. I was, say, I was about yeah. to say, well, why don't we tell people what Kingdom <laughs> Death Monster is before we go too far? Yeah, so it's it it's a game where you basically control the fate of a settlement of what are called survivors in this nightmarish hellscape where they're routinely attacked by... Well, all manner of things. The, the, the base game involves... The, the, the initial encounter involves a, a, a freakishly deformed white lion. But honestly, to say much more than that would kind of spoil a lot of the surprises that the game has in store. Different monsters and different adversaries get introduced, but in this piecemeal kind of way, the, the, the story, such as it is, there isn't much of a story, more on that later, unfolds very gradually. Uh, but at the start, you're you're hunting this lion with nothing but mostly naked survivors with jagged bits of stone, and that very much sort of sets the world up. There are these terrifying forces beyond your control or comprehension, and you're behind the eight ball right from the beginning. That's right. You drop down into this pit with no memory, and you wake up beside these people you don't know, and uh, something's attacking you. Welcome to Kingdom Death Monster. <laughs> Precisely. And so I, I was going to compare it to mostly other other. Uh, uh, dungeon crawlers like Descent and or Gloomhaven or Imperial Assault, which are the three big ones I would consider at this particular moment. And it's the biggest difference with it would be it would be King of Death Monster is something that you wouldn't bring to the, a game night or something. Mm. It's something that you arrange with your gaming group. Those three 
not including Gloomhaven, but uh, Imperial Assault or Descent, arguably you could bring it out on a one-time basis and you do your one dungeon or your one thing, even more so Imperial Assault with the skirmish mode, but Kingdom Death Monster is not something that you would do a one-off. It's definitely, you're in for the long haul, or not at all, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. Yeah, no, I, I agree. When you're playing a game of, uh, even even Gloomhaven, I think, to a certain extent, and I think that Gloomhaven is, in many ways, the natural comparison, um, even just in terms of how they were released. You know, the, these were both labors of love of individual designers who wanted to self-publish. Uh, Isaac Childress, who did Gloomhaven, he had published something before, uh, namely Forge War, on, under his own steam, but... but uh, Gloomhaven as well was kind of a campaign that got out of control and, and more and more things got kind of got stuffed in and we ended up with this massive box that a lot of people underpaid for. Um, but the, the salient difference to my mind is, and this is, this is why you don't play one-offs, I would play a one-off of Gloomhaven because I think the, the primary virtue of something like Gloomhaven is in the core combat mechanics. The core combat mechanics of Kingdom Death Monster are not so hot. I mean... No, as far as I'm concerned, it's all about, like you said, building your settlement, finding out the, the nuances that come in, like what what new and unusual thing is going to happen to your, your poor, poor villagers next, right? And do not get attached to your heroes in this game. Yeah, and I, I don't mean to rag on the game too much, because I do love it. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm invested in Kingdom Death Monster, but any individual piece of the gameplay is not compelling to me. Honestly, like there's nothing, I can't point to any mechanics that really sing to me or are novel or particularly well done, with the possible exception of, of the way the gear grid works. There's a bit of cleverness in terms of, you know, equipping your survivors and, and, and trying to make things work. There's, there's a sort of puzzle mechanic where you slot things together and that can give you some, uh, they're called affinities, and it can give you some minor bonuses. But past that, it's really just roll to hit, roll to confirm, draw a card, see what happens. Um... And it really is through the new stuff. It's, it's the new stuff coming in at a constant basis. What's the next event that's going to happen? What's the next terrible thing that's going to occur? What's this, uh, I see, you know, two years down the line, well, two years in the game, uh, down the line something weird is going to happen. I wonder what that is. Uh, unlike a game like Gloomhaven, which, again, it sells itself on the core, the core card play. Not that I want to talk too much about Gloomhaven in this context. It, no, I was, I, I was thinking of how to compare it this morning. I was thinking about it. You could compare it to it maybe one of these new apps with microtransactions where you're paying with the death of your villagers. Right? <laughs> so you pay with little amounts and that gives you new stuff every time. That's That I think is a really apt comparison. It, 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 is, it, is a, it is a free-to-play game that is powered by microtransactions of human suffering. Exactly. Very nicely put. It's, it's bizarre because I want to make an, another perhaps uh, unfair comparison to me. When I think of Kingdom Death Monster and my enjoyment of it, because I do enjoy it a great deal... I'm reminded a bit of Sentinels of the Multiverse. Uh, not for any particular gameplay uh, comparison, but because when I take a step back, I love playing Sentinels of the Multiverse. But when I take a step back and I look at the game, and I ask myself, is this a well-designed game? My answer is no. I love playing it. I'll play it at almost any opportunity. But a lot of it is pretty stupid. And <laughs> I realize that sounds terribly insulting, and to a certain extent it is. But in, in, in Sentinels of the Multiverse, you draw a card, you play a card, more or less. Yeah. And in Kingdom Death Monster, you know, you, you, uh, you do the best you can to equip people. And then you send them into this meat grinder where you're basically just chucking dice for a while and you see how many people die. Uh, and the number of times, which, which brings me to my number one complaint about Kingdom Death Monster. This is a legitimate complaint. This isn't me just talking about how it's stupid but awesome. But this is, this is where it's stupid but unpleasant, I think. The number of times 
where you're told to roll a d10, just a simple d10 on a table, and a one or a two means you die, is just way too high. Yeah. And this isn't a difficulty complaint. Like, whatever, make a game hard. I like some hard games, but this is just a, a... like. And the number of times I've seen... Look, I haven't played Kingdom of the Monster a ton. I've played it a couple dozen times, I think, all told, in just in terms of individual sessions. I've seen total party kills on random events that where nobody had any choices. It was literally a situation where, like, okay, next step, roll on this table. Okay, next step, roll on this table. Okay, next step, roll on this table. End result, total party wipe. And nobody chose to do anything. This wasn't like, oh, do you want to do this risky thing? Or... Do you want to proceed to the next table? No, no, no. There, because there are some of those, and those I prefer. This is simply, oh, this result says this. This result says this. Now we're all dead. True. And on that, on that same topic, I was going to ask you: Did you remember any combat situations where we didn't either all completely wipe or all completely live and destroy the monster? I don't remember a particular instance where one one person got down, to, you know, to the very end where it's either a do or die situation. It all seemed to be either the monster killed all of us or. We, we destroyed the monster completely. Well, there was that one time when... Uh, to answer your question, no. Not that I can recall. Maybe it's happened. There was that one time that somebody survived with a crippling, debilitating injury. Which I guess is close enough-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one time when we got a, a total party wipe on a combat encounter where it looked like maybe the two people were going to pull it out. That was on one of the Nemesis encounters, and I think... Or maybe I was just being hopelessly naive. Uh... But, you know, and that, that I think, again, speaks to how sort of, um, how relatively simple the combat mechanics are. You go in there with four survivors, when one of them dies, you're now down to 75% combat capacity, and the monster is still at 100. And so, or at least hasn't been disadvantaged by having lost a, a, a character. So yeah, it's a very steamroller kind of effect, and the game kind of encourages, the, so the flip side of that, to the uh, uh, sort of steamroller effect of, of a total party wipe, the game encourages grinding. Like you, You're encouraged in certain contexts to have your fully kitted out survivors go do the combat encounter that they've done two, three, four times before because they know they can get it done without losing anybody. And that's not terribly satisfying either. Uh, you know, again, to, to, to contrast it with any of those other dungeon crawl, uh, crawls you do, you know, you get to move on to other scenarios and, 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 and do other things. Get the next new shiny thing. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in, and that really highlights the, 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 the thing you said before that, that, that I was commenting on, when Kingdom Death isn't showing you constantly new stuff, it's not yeah. the most compelling experience. That's right. It drags. But it does have, it does have I'm going to just talk about the interesting mechanics that I like, and that's the, the monster deck. Like, as he takes wound, his monster deck gets lower. This is no spoilers, so, <laughs> so as you do wounds, his hit points are equal to his combat deck. And as you hurt him, his combat deck's smaller, so his moves are more uh, predictable. Predictable. So I think that is a great, great mechanic. It is. I do like and that is one of the ways in which uh, Kingdom Death smuggles in variety the, in where other games w- might not be able to. Uh, the the fact that even if you're grinding and you're probably going to be able to raffle, raffle stomp some terrible monster uh, at least the, the actions it's going to do might vary a little bit. And that, that provides a, a little bit of diversion, sort of undercut my previous criticism. And yeah, as the monster get, gets wounded, uh, it pairs down the available action to a smaller smaller subset. And those are, I think, some of my favorite parts of the combat encounter, where you're down to just a couple of cards, and maybe one of them is terrible and one of them is awesome. Either, you know, either for you or the monster. And you're, you're just hoping that the next, the next wound is going to narrow it down in, in your favor. And then 
uh, basically it's the equivalent of the monster tricking, you know, berserk mode or something. If the last card in its deck, so it's going to do this every turn, is just terrible for you. That is one element that I think is really good. And okay, fine, it's actually pretty clever. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll take back what I said before. <laughs> And the next one is the art. I think the art is amazing. The fact that they show you what your totally kitted out character is going to look like in their new, improved, full set of of gear. I think that really adds to what you know what you're striving for. It's the same thing that they have in like World of Warcraft or any of these other you know online or things that they show they you know dangle it in front of you and this is what you could have, right? It gives you motivation to get to it. Plus the bonuses it gives is pretty cool. The, I mean, I find it strange that you're saying this because I'm the one that has to build all the minis. It's all that's the other part we can go to, right? The <laughs> miniatures are amazing, fully customizable, like to exactly the kit that you have on your guys. And there's like, I don't know, hundreds of different, millions of different variations you can have on these figures. Yeah, he's moving away from that now. Actually, he's not going to be doing the sort of customizable kits anymore. Uh, and I can understand why the tooling cost was just prohibitive, and it just made every time there was a new gear expansion, it meant he had to make tremendous quantities of minis. So from now on, there's just going to be one sort of archetypal binny fully kitted out in the in the appropriate the, the appropriate stuff but uh, now since we're on the topic of art and the miniatures uh, i think it is important for us to talk about uh, the two giant elephants in the room and that is titties uh, because i think that it's fair to say that a certain amount of the notoriety that the game first got when it was on kickstarter and one of the reasons why it cracked two million was on the strength of titties and I mean, here, here, here's the thing, and I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say my take on it, and then Walker might or might not dis- disagree with me. So, to, from my perspective, in, in in the game gaming universe, there's sort of a sliding scale uh, from uh, you know good progressive uh, non, and, and by progressive I just mean non-exclusionary, just an effort to render women as women look, and. <laughs> As or women might hypothetically look in, in a sort of reasonably plausible way, such that they look like powerful individuals rather than adolescent male fantasy wish fulfillment. And uh, you know, quick shout out to a, a friend of mine, Chris Cheslick. One deck dungeon to me is is a perfect example of that. Without saying anything about it, all the characters are women and they're all rendered well. And I mean, some people show up on on board gaming and say, "Oh, you know, I can't play this game with my son now." It's like, well, you can go screw off. Uh, it's you know, it's just quiet and, and decent. Um, Aeon's End is a game that I didn't particularly like, but it's, it was a majority female cast. Again, relatively understated about it. Uh, but Kingdom Death, the art of Kingdom Death is pretty much on a sliding scale from you know pretty standard warrior babe adolescent power fantasy all the way to more or less softcore pornography. And to its credit, you can you can emphasize what you want, like the, the, the really sort of uh, the, the, the pinups, as, as it were, the, the add-on pinups, don't have any gameplay elements associated with them. You just buy them for the model exclusively. and So I, didn't, I don't have any of those. I didn't get any of those. And the, the actual art in the game, in, in the rulebook, is... I'm, look, I'm not a prude. It's just... It's not to my taste. It's a little... It's clearly for the male gaze. It's clearly to, 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 to titillate the male audience. Uh, so I have no objection to skin necessarily. Uh, and it's about context and presentation and all these other things. I mean, that having been said, I can curate my experience of it so that, you know, all the miniatures that I have are, are closer to just the warrior babe archetype than anything else. I don't know what, what your thoughts are as a oh, consumer. It's quite, there, was another, there was an article today that just made me think of this, this body shaming thing and people being uncomfortable with nudity. But in this particular case, it's an unrealistic representation of, of, 
of that sex, right? Yeah. Right. They have a generic man, but then they have this, you know, unrealistic version of of what a, a naked woman would look like. So na- nudity, I think, is fine, but you know, have it at least realistic. You know what I mean? Yeah, especially since if you're going to be selling me nightmarish uh, horror fantasy, uh, then this sort of, you know, voluptuous, soft-focused lens, perfect hair, vision of the world is kind of really, even all the more galling. Exactly. Um, and, you know, this isn't to condemn anyone that likes it or anything, it's just, you know, not to my taste. I, I would have I would have liked it to have been a little bit more consistently rendered. Well, like, one of these, like, enough already. Yeah. Like, that's... Yeah. We, we've seen it, we've done it, back in Conan days. Let's, let's, uh... Let's get with with today's day and age, please. Yeah, and besides, um, j- just to be just to give perfect fairness to the creator, it's not uh, he 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 does have some things that I think are clearly meant to unsettle uh, the male audience. For example, uh, a, a number of the, uh, the the monsters have anatomical features, without going into too much detail, that are clearly meant to be unsettling to your average uh, gamer guy. And uh, I you know I'm all in favor of that again. I'm not a prude. I don't mind if it, it. It depends on what it's being done, what effect it's 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 seeking to achieve, and all the nightmarish stuff, all the genuinely unsettling stuff. Because there's a there's a fair amount of genuinely unsettling art in the game. I'm all in favor of that. But then the juxtaposition of that, of the death and the perversion, and I mean perversion in the best possible sense, juxtaposing that with uh, sex, the way that it's presented in this game, is a bit weird. Exactly. And unfortunate. Other thoughts, Walker? That would be it for Kingdom Death Monster from on my end. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've just spent a lot of time talking about what I don't like about it. But to sum up, I do like the game a lot. But a lot of what the game is, is about discovery, seeing new stuff. Um, and so I can't really go into too much detail without spoiling too much. Uh, just if you've ever liked fun paperwork in a game, if you've ever you know enjoyed that, you know, sitting sitting with your sheet of paper trying to min-max something... Or uh, if you've enjoyed games like Warhammer Quest, or if you like Gloomhaven but want kind of the nightmare inverse image of games like that, then I highly recommend giving it a shot. It's it's an expensive investment, but try to seek somebody out with a copy and play a round or two and see yeah, what, it's what like. Where are you going to gauge it on replayability? Like, say, if we get through this long campaign, what how like what do you what what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, the uh, that's where the expansions come in, right? Like okay. so, as as I've said, you spend a lot of time fighting the same monster, and even though there's a bit of variation, uh, so every every campaign has a certain number of monsters to plug in, but there's lots of different versions, lots of different expansions that replace those monsters. Sick and tired of fighting a white lion? Well, go and kill a Gorm twenty times over, instead. Yeah, and there's all sorts of different trees that you can take your village on too. I think that yep. would change up the game considerably. Yeah, I've, if with different plays. I don't have a whole lot of experience with the expansions, but they do. They they do manage to break up the the, the formula uh, just enough, I think. Now that's asking you to send more money after a game that's already pretty expensive. But uh, you know, given that as Walker says, this is a game that you're going to want to tuck into with your friends. Maybe you can split the expense, uh, or maybe you're just a generous idiot with too much money like me. Um, but then, uh, if if you all go in together, or again, if you get a chance to try it somewhere, I don't know where that would be. Uh, it, it's it's it is it is an interesting experience, and it is very much unlike a lot of what else is on the market. So I do I do not begrudge it its success, and I look forward to my continued playing of it. All right, how many players would you think this plays best with? You know, to be frank, I've done it solo. I've done it with two, and I've done it with four. I think the the, the one number that definitely doesn't work is three. 
Uh, you can you can play it with five or six. Uh, there are ways to do that. I would not recommend it. I haven't done it myself, but based on the way the rules work, I don't think it's a good idea. Um, three is a bit awkward because every time you go to fight, you, you take four people or four or five or six if you're doing it the ill-advised way. Uh, and um, I think there are cleaner solo experiences available. It was it was good, but uh, there I'm kind of spoiled with solo games, so I, I would play something else. Um, I know that some of the people we play with, uh, one of the one of the people we play with actually is is uh, the guy I played two player with, and he swears by four player. He vastly prefers four. I think two and four are both equally good, honestly. Uh, the, the 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 better aspect of four is you got more people around the table, and you get some, uh, uh, you get to have more input, and and people get to co- collaborate in a shared story. But on the downside is okay. somebody dies, they're out. Exactly. True enough. And with that game, that's that encompassing. It'd be nice to share it with with more. I agree. I think four people is the sweet spot for sure. You wouldn't want to try it with two? No, I'm definitely a, a player that enjoys focusing on my own character instead of trying to multitask multiple characters. I, I, in that type of game, I think I know there are certain games that where there's no asymmetry at all. Asymmetry at all, so it doesn't really matter. You can play multiple sides, or if it's I'm forced to, I don't mind it. But I'd rather just you know focus on one character at a time. Fair enough. I can respect that. That actually does allow me one more thing, uh, one more detail that reminds me of one more thing. The story that Kingdom Death tells is very much about the world. It's very much about the the the, the environment and not so much about the people in it because the people in it keep dying, uh, and that can be again that's one of the differences it has. That's one of the, the the ways it's it's so unique as compared to the rest of the market. It's not precisely calibrated to my taste. I like character driven stories, but. Approaching Kingdom Death Monster as a character-driven story is a great way to be disappointed because the person you like is going to die. I think uh, in in our campaign we're going through now, uh, all the original survivors died several sessions ago. Correct. And in fact, I think we're stuck mostly with newbies. True. Uh, when I was talking to one of the other players about it, I said the the best way to look at it is do not concentrate on your on your actual characters. Concentrate on the gear. The gear is the character. You sort of set this. You start making your sets of gear, and that sort of becomes the character. Okay, this is this is your character is the gear, and then you just put it on particular host, and <laughs> off they go. And because you get all your gear back, thankfully, if your character dies, you don't lose the gear. So then it's ready for the next person. Brush it off, and they get a chance to try it out. So it's a so it's a game for acquisitive sociopaths. <laughs> exactly. Fair enough. All right, so uh, that's those are our thoughts on Kingdom Death Monster. I think uh, uh, two very satisfied players. Uh, my perception is that a lot of people are more enthusiastic about it than I am, but that's not to say that I don't enjoy it. Um, and uh, as I say, it's an experience that's worth trying if you can get if you can get your hands on it. Exactly, agreed. Well, Walker, let's talk a little bit about news. Got anything news you want to talk about? I do. I have a couple things. Betrayal Legacy, Betrayal in House of the Hill Legacy Edition has been announced. What do you got to say about that, Walker? Rob Davio. Uh, I'm sure people will enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask for a little more detail on that, Walker. Well, I, I just, I've, I shouldn't say that. I've only tried, uh, I've only tried Betrayal once, and I've just heard bad things about how the scenarios don't work, and how even when they did Baldur's Gate, it still had had problems. And Legacy Edition, well. The little I've read about it, people, I've liked it. I'll I'll read more into it, and I'll 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 decide later. But I like all legacy games so far, except for Seafall so far. So we'll see how that goes. Charterstone's coming up. We'll see how that we'll see how that goes. But so far, they've all been thumbs up for me. Yeah, I'm kind of 
I'm kind of over legacy games, honestly. Like campaign games, fine. You know, to, to me, to me, a legacy is just kind of a subset of a campaign game, um, and it really depends on how it's executed. So, so you know, the legacy elements of games that I really like it, is, is is really hit or miss. So, Kingdom Death Monster doesn't work without a sort of persistent campaign element. Um, a game like Gloomhaven does work without it, and the the, the new stuff is. Uh, you know, not particularly earth-shattering. Um, I, I I didn't like Seafall either. I'm kind of kind of lukewarm on Pandemic Legacy. I think here's the thing about Rob Davio that that makes me a bit suspicious. Rob Davio did stellar work on Heroescape. I'm still a big Heroescape fan. He did a lot of work on that with Craig Van Ness. A lot of people were involved, but a lot of his development work was really really solid. And ever since then, I haven't really seen him take an original idea and bring it to fruition other than just the legacy format itself. I liked Risk Legacy, but it was... It got by on the strength of its charm and novelty, I think. Pandemic Legacy, I often felt like I was playing just uh, a a subset of the expansions that I liked. I saw a lot of the the ideas reused and and the, the, the new stuff in Pandemic Legacy didn't really do much for me. I know your opinions on Pandemic Legacy are slightly different. I I enjoyed it very much. But like I said, I I don't even own normal Pandemic. I've never bought any expansions. I didn't Mm. play many of them, so it was all new to me. So that's why, Mm. more likely, I enjoyed it more. And second season is getting mixed reviews, so I'm not sure. Like you said, I think he's done a great job on games that already existed. On original games like Seafall. This is yet another one based on a game that is already existing, so maybe... We can hope for the best. Yeah, I, I I share your lack of enthusiasm for this announcement of Betrayal Legacy. Uh, I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe this will be the first time that a really really compelling narrative story comes out of things like this. Because you know, there's certainly Betrayal has always sought to be a narrative experience. Now, the quality of that is, uh, you know, some people really like it, but you know, like you, I'm not terribly enthused about it. Uh, but who knows? Maybe this is because Seafall didn't really have, I think, the basis for a compelling narrative to begin with. It was just you know go out and exploit some islands, more or less. Uh, but it, I'm I'm open to the possibility of being of being proven wrong and this being a really good story. But I I quite frankly don't really care about <laughs> betrayal like <laughs> either. We can hope for the best. What have you got yeah. for the next one? I just noticed this is this is less about specific news and more about a general trend lately, and this is about uh, WizKids starting to up its game. I think uh, ever since they hired uh, Zeb Schlesinger from, well, formerly his his own company, Z-Man, they put out Sidereal Confluence. They put out um, another game called uh, Empires, which looks very promising. They put out the Expanse. They really seem to be uh, the Expanse was done by um, uh, Jeff Engelstein. I, I'll, I'm always down for an Engelstein design. So they really seem to be uh, uh, trying to step up. A uh, quick note on that: they've entered, they've just announced that they're going to be doing a new Magic: The Gathering game. Yeah, I mean, thanks for coming to rain on my parade. I don't really care about that necessarily, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm. This is a company that their components have always been shoddy, right? I mean. Mage Knight was an, a, a very unfortunate. I'm talking about the the Vlada game. Yeah, yeah, the, the expansions have been very. Disappointing, that's for sure. Well, just in terms, I, I just mean in terms of the physical quality of, of what they put out. The card stock is meh, the, the the minis are weird, and yes. everything's all just kind of looks kind of shoddy and rushed. 
Uh, and that's even true of these games that I like. Sidereal Confluence is a WizKids game, and you know the card stock is terrible. It's 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 a game that consists of roughly two things: cards and cubes, and the cards are kind of flimsy, um, which is unfortunate. Uh, and uh, the expanse is kind of you know it's a licensed game. Try to you know Gale Force Nine is not a big company, but they managed to put out impressive looking products. Broadly speaking, you know whether it's they they pay attention to the graphic design, they try to make the components nice. I wish that WizKids would take their their physical production kind of in that direction. Uh, but all that I know is that in a, in an increasing era of market consolidation, you've got basically uh, Asmodee, uh, Coolmany or not. And, you know, that's more or less it. As far as big companies go, putting out uh, big things, Queen used to be a big deal and is less so. Uh, Mayfair used to be a big deal and is practically dead now, which is unfortunate. Uh, I'm just glad that there's another company that's really putting in, that, that, that's really taking the time to, to, to find, both work with established uh, designers like uh, Jeff Engelstein, and find people to publish their first designs like they did with Sidereal Confluence or with Empires, that look like really interesting stuff, and uh, so I, I, I hope to see more from them. True. And for companies that are upping their game, next one is uh, Games Workshop. Upping your game, bringing games back. Necromunda, on the way back in. Yeah. I did a turnaround on this. Like I was, when I first saw the picks, I was I was aghast, but then I said, you know, why would we want to just rehash the game that was out you know, years and years ago? If it was that good, people would still be playing it. Why would they just rehash the same thing over again? So I'm glad they're like bringing a completely new look to it, and we'll see how that goes. What are your thoughts on the new Necromunda? Yeah, I mean, I've I've always had this strange fascination with all the non-Warhammer stuff that the Games Workshop has put out. I played uh, Mordheim back in the day. Uh, Space Hulk has been a perennial favorite for forever. Shade Spire is out, and we like that. Uh, I hope that. Necromunda does better than uh, Shadow War Armageddon, which is a product they released two weeks before 8th edition of uh, of 40k. They put it out and have given it zero support. It's kind of died by itself. True, I was a little upset about that part. They sort of said, we're bringing back Necromunda and then they they bring out this Armageddon, and people say, well, is this the new Necromunda? And I, they almost purposely just kept quiet on the subject. Yeah. And then suddenly Necromunda is announced as well. So take yeah. from that as you will, but it just means Necromunda, new miniatures, the base game I think is going to come with just the two gangs and uh, a basic skirmish one-off type thing, and then you have to buy yet a separate book again if you want to do the old campaign style. Yeah, that part disappoints me. It's true, but I think they want, they're trying to get this game to the table more where... Like the gaming night, they can reach up to the shelf, they can pull this box off the table, it comes with the game mats, you set the doors up. That's true. It's on your table. The average person can now bring this to the table. Whereas now the advanced gamer can either just A, buy the book, they already have, they can go down to the gaming store with all the terrain, you know, the, your tape measures, everything else, and play the advanced game. And your average Joe can just, you know, pull it out on the tabletop and play the one-offs. Sure, but is your average Joe going to want to assemble miniatures? And on top of that, is the average show going to pay what's going to be one twenty five, one hundred for this base box, right? More so. than a hundred, I think. Uh, in terms of uh, of American dollars, it's it's well north of that. Our petty Canadian greenbacks, I think, are, are... It's, it's going to be a high high count. But yeah, we'll have to wait and see. Like you said, there, we've not seen shades uh, uh, Armageddon being played. Yep. Well, hopefully, this Necromunda will take off, and we'll uh, go back to the glory days of having our hive gangs ravaging across the tabletop. 
I'd, I'd very much like that. I, I will say that, uh, you know, just in terms of development of things, it, it's been a few months now since Games Workshop and FFG parted ways with their licensing arrangement. And a number of people speculated at the time, does this mean that Games Workshop is really going to redouble its efforts in trying to provide something closer to a board game experience? You and I are both miniatures gamers. We've, we've, we've done all this, this, this stuff before. But you're right. If this is their attempt, if Shadespire and this new kind of distribution model for Necromunda is their attempt to try to get into crossover gamers. Because I remember what it was. I started out as a board gamer. Um, and, you know, when I first... I think it was actually with Mordheim, of all things, now that I think about it. the first My first foray into miniatures gaming. It's intimidating as all get out, having to be able to get all the materials to assemble them, and then all the terrain and everything. But if with, with Necromunda and Shadespire, all they basically say is, look, all you need is some clippers. And the rest it's going to fit together. I don't know if the... Uh, I, I actually... If the Necromunda's are pushed together, I'm not sure. The yeah, way they I, look, they might. They probably will be. I think they, that's where they're going. I could be wrong. If it's, if it's pushed together, if this is sort of trying to be pitched to the same kind of uh, crossover space uh, that, that Shadespire does, that, that could be something. Now, then again, we don't know how well Shadespire's been, been selling. None of these people release sales figures. Uh, reports from the retailers that I've spoken to have been very good, and a number of people they've, they've already had a couple of tournaments out in the UK. Uh, so that is a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. If this is this, if this is them attempting to break into a market where it's like this is a miniatures box in a game, uh, miniatures game in a box rather, people have tried to do that for a while to varying degrees of success. Uh, if they manage to do it, then more power to them. Yeah, I just want to quickly for the last my last part, just go back on that thing where WizKids brought out a Magic the Gathering game based off of HeroScape, slow to release stuff, not promoting it, letting it die pretty well. I think they're still putting out expansions uh, for some reason. Are they, really? They are. Oh. And now they've announced yet another Magic the Gathering game, as well as this one, so who knows? Yeah, I was only uh, I was only enthusiastic about, about Arena of the Planeswalkers, as it was called, uh, because I was I was... I wanted it to be true more than I believed it would be true that this would be the second coming of Heroescape, that there would be another possibility of doing that, because I still, I, still lo- I still love that dice chucker, man. All right, that's, do you have any other news items? Uh, no, I don't. With that in mind, let's, uh, let's proceed with a quick word from our sponsor. This week we're brought to you by your mom. Your mom. She's a classy lady. All right, so let's talk about our, our primary topic here. Let's talk about randomness and how to deal with it. Walker, what are your thoughts on this on this massive topic that we've chosen? Well, it's it's done in multiple ways: rolling dice, drawing off the top of your deck, and how to how to litigate it. Like rolling more dice, having more like having tons of dice. Like we just said, Games yeah. Workshop. When your units fire, you're rolling buckets of dice. That's one way to change it up. Or something like Risk, where you're doing multiple multiple rounds of dice rolling to try to to balance it out. Yep, that is one of the ways. You know, try to make sure that a curve is respected. If you're going to use dice, try to make sure that it that it, that it evens out. Uh, you know, 2d6 is always better than 1d6. If you're going to be rolling uh, just uh, just for one-offs, you're going to get a better curve that way. Lots of dice is definitely the way to do it. War games have been doing this for, for, for a long, long time, whether it's tabletop war games or your more traditional GMT stuff or the block war games. You know, if you tell me to... to and besides, it's just physically enjoyable to pick up 20 six-sided dice and chuck them all. Exactly. Rather than gather up all your forces, have a massive push, and then just roll a d6. Yeah, or flip a card or, you know, because you have more guys than they do, guess what, you win. Some arbitrary, you know, chart that you look at just yeah. to see if you win or not. What's the most arbitrary game you love, Walker? 
most arbitrary game would have to be that new one we just played, Shadespire, where you're drawing random cards off of two different decks. Yep. Then you're randomly rolling dice as well. It's it's a whole bunch of randomness, <laughs> all that needs to be managed somehow, so you get a good experience. And it always ha- always has been a good experience. Yeah. So I that's that would be the one I would have to say that surprised me. Like when I thought about what we were doing, and I said I can't believe that. It is this fun. Yeah, because Shadespire, in many ways, is the opposite of, of what we just talked about. It's not buckets of dice at all. It's very it's a very tight game. Each side only has 12 activations the entire game. Attacks are consisting of two or three dice, and not every activation is going to result in an attack. You roll very few dice over the course of the game. Uh, and so I, I definitely remember that first time we played, where I just sat there and I looked back at some of the results, and it's like, this is weird and unsatisfying in a number of ways, why do I still like this game? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, another game like that, that that struck me as a game called Ordis Regni, which uh, uh, I know you've only played a couple times, but it's it's a very low luck game, except for when you fight. And when you fight, you just pull a, pull a, a card off the top of the deck, and that card can mean everything from you are the conquering champion, and every all of Earth's gifts are yours, all the way to well, you're boned, and there's nothing you can do about it. And when a game it doesn't even matter how long the game is, but of course the longer the game, the worse. If everything hinges on one unmodifiable flip of, of a card or one single throw of a die, that's that's a warning sign, and it often can lead to hurt feelings and unpleasantness. And D&D, it's a D20, so you have a 1 in 20 variable. Yep. Or, and then they've changed it with the big fantasy flight system. They have Descent and Imperial Salt, where they made a huge change, where in Descent you roll... The blue die, which has an X on it, which means you know you're you've geared up for this big attack, and guess what? You've missed. And they just flip flopped it in Imperial Salt, where on the defense they've made it so some some characters or monster groups roll a white die, where the result will come up just as in you miss. And just that small change, I know it's almost exactly the same thing, but uh, mentally it makes such a huge change. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's exactly the point. There are ways, so there are design ways to mitigate the effects of luck on the uh, experience. But then there's you can you can manipulate the psychology of the players involved, and I mean manipulate in the best possible way. And I think that change from descent for, to imperial assault is great. If I throw my dice and the dice tell me you missed, I feel like a chump. But on the other on the other hand, if somebody throws their defense dice and their defense dice say omni dodge. Well, then that makes the dodger feel better. It also makes the attacker feel better, too. Because the attacker doesn't feel like it. Like and, of course, this is all irrational, right? This is just all right. what the dice are telling That's you. That's right. It's, sometimes you get the players will feel as though their decisions are taken out of their hands and that yep. the game has turned against them, right? And that, that is what's going to ruin the game experience for people. Yeah, and, and I, think, I think that's a good way of putting it. You have to know... I find myself sometimes, even for these random games that I love to, to sort of talk myself into a position where re- reminding myself what the experience is going to be like, letting the game speak for itself and just accepting the fact that some weird nonsense is probably going to happen over some course of the game. Because I don't want to be that guy who gets frustrated over die results. I am that guy often, right? Okay. Like I, I, I have a terrible temper and I get frustrated very easily. This is because I'm a man-child. Uh, but it's... it's, it's it... <sighs> I much prefer it when the game is able to to moderate those things. And if I look down at a die that, with a big X on it that says "you suck," that's going to make make me want to flip the table a lot more uh, than looking across the table to see, "Oh well, he rolled the Omni Dodge. Eh, I did yeah, what I could." That's right. I did. I've done. I did my part. It's not my fault that he rolled well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, like you said, knowing the range. It's like the myth of bad luck when people run into a bunch of bad luck. And they think they're due for now. It's my time, right? <laughs> Where it's like, oh, I've rolled poorly for this whole game. Yep. 
And now it's it's obviously got to do better. So yeah. these next rolls, I'm obviously going to do better. When it's not, it's always the same percentage chance every time. That that reminds me of a set of behaviors that I've seen all the time, and I don't I don't remember doing it myself recently, but I'm sure I did back in my teenage years when I was a role player. Uh, when people <laughs> when a bad result comes up, either it because they rolled very well and it's a competitive game, or they rolled very badly and it's a cooperative game, people start criticizing the way people roll dice, right? If you exactly. if you if you need your partner to do something properly in a co-op game and the result is terrible, you look at that die and said, "Why did you roll it underhand or roll it more first yeah. or don't throw it so far across the table? Why did you like, just slide those? Yeah, exactly. Roll it like, properly. Like obviously people can cheat when rolling dice, right? But setting all that aside, that's very rare. That's like I've only ever heard anyone accuse it, accuse anyone of that like maybe twice over the course of my life. But like you know, people just roll dice the way they roll dice. <laughs> but if it's the result that just ruins someone's day. They get really mad, and oh, I find that fascinating behavior. And I'm I'm completely sympathetic to it, of course, because as you say, we tell ourselves this story that we we're in control of our own lives, which is false most of the time, and it's definitely false the moment you pick up a die. Uh, but oh man, people get so frustrated. So, did you have any particular games about games that are totally random that you like? Totally random that I like. Oh wow. Um... I don't think like you mean like war like at the level yeah, of war just, or, L- or, or LCR or, or like dice tower where you're throwing in cubes and just random cubes will pop at the bottom and there's like no luck or it just it's like a physical mechanism that's denying you cubes and you physically get mad at it in <laughs> objects like damn you tower. Well, whether I'm getting mad at a tower or a die makes no never mind to me. It's true. The, the thing the thing that I love about the uh, the, the cube tower of, of Shogun and everything uh, Shogun and Wallenstein and Immortals is that it has a memory. It's just, you know, as you said before, we hope that if we rolled badly in turn one, we're going to roll better later on. But that's the beauty of the cube tower. If, you, if you've if you done really badly and all your cubes are stuck up there, you know they're going to come out that's sooner right. or later. You know the range. Right? Yeah. And you know how to modify it. How about games that do it properly, that mitigate this randomness or, or adjust the game mechanics? The ones I have down here are Ashes. Like, Ashes, it's mm. where you're going to draw cards. But what you do get to do is you get to pick your starting hand. Yeah. I think that is a, a, a amazing mechanism. I thought that was fantastic. No, I agree, especially in a game like that where you need to be able to hit the ground running. You know, the number of of you know games of of CCGs that can often be determined just by initial draw are it, it's it's very unfortunate. So yeah, being able to pick your initial hand is is definitely a good way to do it. Um, in terms of uh, games that let you mitigate. Uh, luck. This is actually one of your bugbears. You talk about this all the time, how you, you dislike it when a game has random card draws and has random dice results. I often find that if it's done properly, that one can help with the other. For example, if you're playing Battle Lore, uh, second edition, there are a number of cards there that specifically make reference to uh, modifying dice after they've been rolled or mitigating the results of dice or things like that. And so sure, you may be drawing off the top of a, of a random deck, but you know that the cards, that's one of the benefits of cards over dice generally, you can plan for it. You've got a fistful of cards and you know what to do and you can try to shape the game so that it's playing to the strength of, of, of the hand that you've got in front of you. That's what hand management is all about. Uh, and if you use some resource or some action to be able to mitigate dice results, then I'm, I'm very happy. Uh, and it, it, even, when, even when it doesn't actually even out the vicissitudes of chance, it at least makes me feel, again, more like I'm in control. That's right. And that's what you want out of a game most of the time. You want the experience, but you want to be able to feel like your choices have impact even when they don't. And the swing, right? It's always nice when that last, you know, when that 
you have that one soldier that's holding out against the the multitudes, right? <laughs> it's always nice to have him, you know, hold the home front and be the hero of the day as he holds back the hordes of units. It's always good to have that one instinct. Yeah, absolutely. Even if you don't pull it off, just being able to hold out a little bit longer is often very good. One of the things that I find interesting in terms of, again, managing the psychology of the user experience is... Um, uh, so Dragonfire was recently released, which is the evolution of, of a game called uh, Shadowrun Crossfire by, uh, uh, by Catalyst Labs. And uh, people really rag on those games for being hard, which is one thing. But setting that aside, people really rag on the randomness because the way they, those games work is you have to symbol match to defeat an opponent. You need you know this specific resource to kill them out of out of four colors. And people really go nuts about how well you know I didn't draw the card I needed, so I'm toast. But uh, I always I, I always contrasted that with a game like uh, the Pathfinder adventure games, which I I didn't much like, but but. At the end of the day, when you're playing games that allow you to roll dice, say I play a card and it says it allows me to roll a die to try to defeat this thing. If I play a card and I roll the die and I don't, I don't get the target number, uh, that is just as bad, if not worse, as my never having drawn the card that matches the color that I need, right? Exactly. But for some reason, I feel like I've done something. You know, just just the process of picking up the die and getting the wrong result. From a fourth dimensional perspective, randomness cost me my good result anyway. Same, same as it would work in Crossfire or Dragonfire, same as it would work anywhere else, but just the act of rolling the die makes me feel like I had some participation in this process, uh, whereas if I'm sitting there and none of my cards let me do anything, I, it feels that all that more frustrating. And that, that sort of asymmetry, I don't have much to say about it, but I, I do find it interesting how just the physical act of doing things makes you feel like a participant even when you're not. Now, do you feel as though this could be uh, summed up into like a, a Euro versus a Meritrash? Because you can think of multiple mm. incidents where Euro games they've taken out almost all the randomness, like Hans Teutonica or mm -hmm. or uh, Tigers and Euphrates, where there's very little randomness, as opposed to Meritrash games where it's all about you know plastic and dice. And mm. I don't know. It's it's weird because I do think that Euro games talking about this element of, of of masking the effects of randomness. Euro games often look less random than they are. Uh, so, Tigers, I, I adore Tigers and Euphrates, but there's a fair amount of randomness in that game. There's a fair amount of chance, and you, it is it is very much, I think, uh, uh, the epitome of what I was talking about before in terms of hand management. You're going to have this set of tiles in front of you, and you need to play to your strengths. You need to force the game, and you need to force your actions, and if possible, the actions of your opponents, to uh, play to your strengths and avoid your weaknesses. And if you don't do that, the game is going to feel completely random. I know a number of people who refuse to play the game because they think it's all about how many red tiles you draw. It's not about how many red tiles you draw. That's only if you take the you know the the most obvious play. If you're always swimming in the exact tiles you need, then the game seems really simple and obvious. But on the other hand, the true art of the game is making a bad hand work for you, and or knowing when you need to take the action to flush your hand. And that's one of the ways that 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 uh, Euro games really serve to. For some reason, if you've got a you know a, a hand of cards, it looks less random than the throw of a die. But at the end of the at the end of the day, if you don't get the die result you need, or if you don't get the card you have, it's the same same result. But that having been said, I do agree that Euro games generally uh, do a do a better job of um, knowing when they need to use randomness and when they don't. There are exceptions to this. Uh, one game I think that does not get the reputation it deserves in terms of randomness is Dominion. Dominion is a hugely random game. Uh, but it doesn't feel that way, in part because it's so quick and inoffensive, and uh, in part because uh, you, the, the, the market is not random, unlike a lot of later deck builders. 
But man, if you if your cards clump the wrong way, you are toast, and there's nothing you can do about it. I wonder if there, there's no many complaints in that game because it's not as though you're attacking someone or you're not influencing another player. It's just mm. happening to you. So maybe that's why there's it, it's a little more acceptable than it is in other games. Sure. Well, that I mean that raises another question. How do you keep your cool when the game is telling you that that you don't get to, you don't get to win today? Oh, I'm I'm too easygoing, so it usually <laughs> doesn't bother me so much at all. When it's a two-player game, it's a little a little difficult. So sometimes I think because the luck has gone so poorly against me or so poorly for me that it's just a, not a good experience, mm-hmm. right? Because you know when you're trashing somebody, it just makes for a bad game. I'm always good for just a good game. Like when I'm watching sports, I'm usually not rooting for a team. I'm rooting for good plays, good you know, just a good game in general. Right, so I'm, and I, I just usually transfer that over to most board games. I'm just looking for a good experience for everyone. I enjoy a game when everyone is having fun. So when a random, when randomness goes one way or the other too badly, then I, it, it, I just don't have fun. Yeah, you're so saintly, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's the way I was raised. I was, I was, I was hoping for some sort of insight into uh, you know how to improve my character, but now you're just uh, you came out perfect, and so <laughs> I. One thing that I wish more people would do, and I think this is sort of a, a good social convention, is, and I try to do this, but sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm very bad at it. If you're doing very well in a game, especially when it's head-to-head and it's a two-player game and you're really trashing them, I think it's good, it, it's just being sporting, to engage in a sort of collective fiction. It's like, well, you know, you played well, but those dice, man, they just took it from you. Whether or not that's true... You know, it's a sort of... There are lots of things we do in terms of average, everyday social conversation that are either either collective fictions or sometimes just omissions of the full truth. I, I, I certainly feel that all of my friends do that with respect to my beard, for example. They don't point out how hideous it is, and I'm very, I'm very grateful for that. But if I'm trashing somebody in a game, I try to focus on those those times when I rolled really well and say, like, well, you know, it's not it's not like I outplayed you. It's just, you know, these things happen. Or when I'm losing, when I'm losing a two-player competitive game like that, I certainly appreciate it when my opponent is like, eh, you know, sometimes this happens. It didn't, it didn't go your way. Remember that time when I rolled that 20 at that, at yes. that right moment? And I'm certainly happier when that happens. And I'm certainly happier when... Uh, I see other people do it, willing, willing to you know spare people's feelings on account of uh, on account of the game. I think it's that extra little, extra little uh, lubricant, if you will, not to not not to be too gross about it, that really helps in in situations like that. Because I, I I hate it when people get frustrated. It's true. Well, that's my bread and butter, though, is watching how people react to different situations. So I really enjoy watching how people either squirm or get angry, or to a certain degree, right? Unless they're like going over the top and making the experience bad for the other players yeah. by complaining too much about how the game is punishing them. Yeah, because you'd think it would go the other way around. You'd think that people would beat themselves up for being stupid, right? Remembering that time that three turns ago they did the stupid thing. It's like, why am I such an idiot? People don't tend to do that as as much in my experience. I've seen some people do it. But usually it's, why did this die? Why, did this ca- why didn't I get the right card? Why didn't I get, get the right tile? Why didn't exactly. I get the right die? Um, Instead of saying, why didn't I prepare for this? Why didn't I seed my bag? Or why didn't I put these into my discard pile? Sure. So I would get you know more of that particular card and thereby you know not falling into the mistake. It's more like, it's my deck's fault or I didn't draw right. Or Yeah. And it's, it's bizarre then that people get so frustrated about something that's completely beyond their control rather than getting frustrated about what an idiot they are. Uh, and uh, no, you know, I'm the same way. I look back at, at, at stupid plays I make, even when I can, I can demonstrably identify, oh, that was a dumb play, and Shark can say, ah, well, I'll try to do better next time. 
And but on the other hand, if, if you know if it's a string of bad results or a string of two good results from somebody, especially if they're being jerks about it, if somebody gets a string of good results and then talks about how brilliant they are, that really ticks me off. But anyway, that's that's that that's on me. Well, that's what yeah, I have yeah, to keep yeah. reminding people too. When you play these co-op games, randomness is the game's only weapon. It's the only way they can throw anything at you, right? So you're going to get that you know heavy swing once in a while because you know there's no one playing that game. So you're going to be drawing off a random deck or you're going to be drawing random dice because it's it's it, it's for now until someone's come up comes up with a insane game mechanic. Right now, randomness is co-op's only weapon. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, there's some exceptions. Uh, this year's brilliant Spirit Island is not is is pretty non-random. But yeah, at the end of the day, that's. If you make it a solvable puzzle, there's not going to be much replay value to it, and so there has to be. There's usually some deck of cards or something that drives the engine. I certainly know that when that one of the best ways to avoid frustration is just to be sporting about it, to to, to remember remember the times that the dice have been nice to you rather than the dice have been mean to you, and you know talk about that. It's like, oh well, you know, I certainly didn't deserve that that success, but I'll take it. I, I find that very, very helpful in social situations. I just, uh, I get so on edge when I see people losing their shit over over die results. I just, I just don't know what to do. It's, it's, um, it's terrible. Well, maybe not so bad once. But <laughs> if, if the poor person gets it over and over again, then I can see where it can get uh, a little annoying. Yeah, no. Uh, look, I'm, I'm sympathetic. As I say, right. I, I've, I've, I've thrown my fair of, of, of fits over what I take to be unreasonable results all the time. But uh, I just... Uh, I was about to say, how many times? I've seen it twice, people throwing dice. Throwing dice? Throwing dice across I, I, the room. I, I, I don't think I've seen that. I've seen... I've seen people, like, very... Vi- I've seen games put away very violently, but I don't know that I've seen people hurling dice across. Or how about people putting dice aside? Like, I'm not going to roll that one again. I'm now oh, going to roll geez. these. These ones now. These ones are better dice. Again, just the That's things amazing. the things we do to give ourselves the illusion of control. Exactly. It's fantastic. I'm going to roll with this hand or that hand or, you know... Oh, I, I, well, never, I've never seen it as bad in uh, board or war or miniatures games as it was during role-playing games. Role players... I don't know if this is still true, but when I was role-playing a lot, like 15, 20 years ago, the nonsense that we would tell tell ourselves about what die to use and what context and all that... Oh, jeez. I don't... I don't... <laughs> I, Lucky D20. Yeah, no, and I, I never I never engaged in that stuff then, either. I was like the, uh, you know, the, the, the 13, 14-year-old playing sometimes with, you know, grown adults who were like, oh, this is, this is my special die, and I'm like, you realize it's just a standard distribution, right? Well, not necessarily in those terms. Uh, but ugh. that having been said, it is worth noting. There are a lot of crappy dice that don't roll standard distributions. <laughs> I remember once I got a, a set of dice from um, from China. I needed like five D20s, all the same color and, and size. And so I ordered, I got some on eBay for a very small amount. And um, I noticed that I, I did actually sit down and did about 100 throws or something and just put them into a spreadsheet. Yes, this is how cool I am, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, they were not a standard distribution. <laughs> they, just did a, they, they were literally concave, and they, they, they just they were squashed, and so the results were just bizarre. Uh, so I had to trash those guys because they were crap. But short of that, uh, I am amazed at, at the kind of selective memory that we have. I mean, look, not not to get too philosophical about it or, or, or psychological, but the human mind is designed to recognize patterns, and when there is no pattern, we make one up. 
which is why we're so bad at perceiving randomness. You show a person a random distribution, uh, if it's certainly if it's too small enough, they're going to invent a pattern or, or 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 think that it's not random. It's like, oh, I rolled the same result three times in a row. This can't be random. No, no, no. Random distributions do that all the time. Uh, but that's another bugbear. Well, I'm pretty well done with randomness. Let's randomly end this segment. <laughs> Fair enough, Walker. <laughs> So, this has been uh, your episode of So Very Wrong About Games. Um, you can reach Walker uh, at justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. Walker hates T-H. So, uh, please, in all correspondence with him, uh, don't use words like the or that. It's da or dat exclusively. Uh, he, he will appreciate that. Uh, you can reach me, Mark Bigney, at, on Twitter, at all the games you like. Um, and uh, we'd love to hear from you if you have requests for games you'd like us to talk about or topics you'd like us to cover uh, general complaints uh, or grievances can instead be sent to Air Canada at uh, aircanada.ca uh, and we look forward to talking with you again any final words to send us out there Walker? Not at all You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.